0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week we will be talking about the disappearance of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi and its implications for international diplomacy. It's now two weeks since the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi went to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in order to collect documents for his divorce and he has not appeared since then. There are reports that Saudi Arabia is going to release a report saying that he did indeed die, that it was an accident during an unauthorized attempt to interrogate and repatriate Mr Khashoggi. Donald Trump has said that it was maybe rogue elements within the Saudi elite But in parallel with this, there have been more developments in Turkey, including the release of the previously imprisoned American pastor, Andrew Bronson. What this shows is how complicated the triangle of relationships are, which lie behind this. The relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States of America, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia, and between the U.S., and Turkey, to help us make sense of this complicated triangle and also to think about what it means for Europe. We have an all-star cast from Istanbul, who Asla Aydin Tashbash, our senior policy fellow, has been following events on the ground. From London, our research director, Jeremy Shapiro, is looking at the transatlantic elements of this relationship. And from Brussels, the head of our Middle East and North Africa program, Julian Boz-Daisy, is exploring what it means for Saudi Arabia and its role within the Middle East. Asta, why don't we start with you?
1: Well, uh, this tragic incident has been interesting in terms of Turkey's reaction to it and and also because it really coincided with a crisis in the Turkish-US relationship about the imprisonment of a US pastor. And in some really unexpected way, I think, Led to almost led to a thaw in uh, last week in uh, relations between Ankara and Washington, in the sense that initially the murder is, well, the alleged murder but we're now fairly certain that he was killed, well, it took place about two weeks ago. Yes, I do live in the same neighborhood, and I did check out the Saudi consulate where it is. And I've also been talking to Turkish officials about this incident. Uh, and they had information fairly early on, from day two or three, but were un- unwilling to come forth and put the blame on Saudis, instead asking for answers, where did he disappear then, which as you all know at this point, is very uncharacteristic. It was very uncharacteristic for Erdogan to use a very diplomatic tone and sort of solely seek answers and, and not really lash out. I mean, for things like uh, you know the, the a comedian in germany we 've given a note and uh, called the german ambassador and almost uh, and for uh, for for a visit uh, last year with the netherlands for for, for 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 when the Dutch authorities would not let Turks hold a political rally, we severed off relations with netherlands i mean we We all have a sense of how things could really get out of hand in terms of the diplomatic spats, but this was very different. Turks were extremely moderate in there, including President Erdogan, and very diplomatic. And I think there is a reason for that. Uh, This came, this happened, this was a shock to the system. It happened that Jamal Khashoggi is someone they know and like here in Turkey, particularly AKP and the uh, president's own circle is friends with him. But not just that, it also happened at a time when Turkey was feeling extremely vulnerable, Vulnerable econ- economically, relations with United States had pretty much had, a, had hit a rock bottom. But also, uh, I think there was a sense of isolation. We had the problems with Germany, you know, the spat with Netherlands, things with Europe are not going well. There's an effort to normalize. Forget a honeymoon. We're just, you know, Turkey is heavily engaged in an effort to normalize its relations. And U.S. sanctions, United States, because of the imprisonment of U.S., uh, citizens, including Pastor Brunson, uh, U.S. had imposed a, had imposed sanctions on Turkish officials. I mean, it's it's quite unprecedented for a NATO country. So you had Erdogan simply asking questions, and what changed? The, what made a difference, I think, was the unexpected to to Turkish, I think, uh, government. The unexpected reaction from Washington, in the sense that. You know, Congress was quite uh, very took this very seriously. People like Lindsey Graham and other senators made it very clear that they're not going to let this slip by. Washington Post, New York Times, U.S. media in general took a very firm position, and even you know the administration. Yes, there were various statements that from Donald Trump that made people angry, but it, but this was an issue that he talked about every single day, sometimes two, three times a day. So I think that has given Turks some sense of uh, courage in terms of coming forth. They did not really come forth with the evidence. They leaked it. Right now, the investigation is going on. Teams were already inside. Saudis were forced to come out and say, we're going to cooperate and work with the investigation. Turks felt that they need to go along with the Saudi offer. The question is, is this going to be whitewashed now with Washington involved when I ask this to Turkish official, they say no, and that they will carry on with the investigation, particularly Istanbul prosecutors, and that they do have evidence. I think that there is—you've probably see, heard about a possible recording of what was going on in the media, you know, a recording of actual of Khashog, you know, of Jamal's interrogation inside the, the consulate uh we don't have an official confirmation of that from turkish from turks but basically unofficially off the record they seem to have pretty strong electronic evidence of his murder including a possible in audio recording so uh this story will carry on but it's had an unexpected Thaw in relations between Washington and uh, Ankara, despite the very tepid reaction from donald trump
0: thank you very much, Asla. That was quite a lot of uh, uh, different elements of the um, uh, of the story. Be really interesting maybe before we go to you, Julian, to talk about the bigger significance in terms of saudi 's role to get a sense from jeremy about the u s reaction um, and how uh, the uh, whole episode is changing the trump administration's approach to one of the two pillars of its middle east policy alongside uh israel the saudi relationship was 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 one of the kind of central pillars of of the trumpian middle east strategy
2: yeah, there's no way, I, you know, look, in my view, there's no way that this is going to change their central approach. And I think uh, to Saudi Arabia, which is, as you said, a pillar. Uh, it's one of the few countries in the world that Donald Trump actually likes. Uh, and uh, it's, it, he, in that, he accords with his entire administration and with most of the American establishment, which has been, you know, working pretty uh, pretty hand in glove with Saudi Arabia for about 60 or 70 years uh, and, you know, I mean, if uh, it, it is interesting to see Washington go, get so upset about something like this. I mean, you know, I guess if the Saudis can, you know, bomb a Yemeni wedding with American weapons and kill over 100 people and that, that you know, maybe gets a front page story. But if you but if you kill a Washington Post columnist, that's a serious thing. Uh, and that. Um, and so you have seen a really visceral reaction out of the Washington community, uh, and it's been echoed in Congress, I guess, by Lindsey Graham and by a few others. But you know, the the ballast in this in the U.S. Saudi relationship is such uh, the desire that the U.S. has to use the Saudi to use Saudi Arabia in the confrontation with Iran to use Saudi Arabia in its efforts to create Israeli-Palestinian peace uh, and the ways in which it tries, still tries to use Saudi Arabia as a stabilizer in the oil market, I think means that they, they're just really not going, they're really looking for ways to move past this. And that's what Pompeo's mission is. And when you see Donald Trump saying, well, I take this very seriously, but you know maybe it was a rogue killer, Uh, maybe it was, you know, uh, a friend of Brett Kavanaugh or somebody. Um, I think that that sort of shows you that they're looking for ways to push past this story uh, in a way that will somehow satisfy the outrage in Washington, but not really fundamentally change the relationship.
0: Okay, Julian, maybe um, we can go to you to kind of look at the the bigger picture I mean I know that you knew Jamal Khashoggi well and he certainly took part in a few ECFR events that, that I was in so I'm sure that you've been thinking about it a lot on a sort of personal level but also be interesting to know what you think the kind of longer term consequences will be for, for Saudi Arabia the way that it is perceived um, both regionally and, and globally and, and what how this story is likely to kind of carry on playing out.
3: Sure. I mean, I think as as um, as Jeremy noted, there's a there's a, a certain uh, disequilibrium with the fact that, that the murder of, of of one person does generate all of this attention when uh, Riyadh has been behind a lot of other activities across the region, whether the war in Yemen, whether the alleged hostage taking of of the Lebanese prime minister all of which have, of course, had much more profound uh, implications and and really have not provoked the kind of reaction that we are seeing today. So there is a certain disconnect there. But I think it has been important in uh, shining a spotlight on uh, some of these activities of of, of Riyadh and, I think, Saudi Arabia. And I would say the, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in particular are under a lot of pressure, unprecedented pressure, about the nature of, of of the way that they do business in in, in the region and, and and globally and there are a lot of I, there's been a lot of unease shall we say about saudi behavior for, for a while now for several years but there's been very willing little willingness um politically to to really confront that because of course Riyadh is such a central player um to to the foreign policy of the us in the region but european actors and so forth but suddenly you have this 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 um, uh, tragedy happening with Jamal and, and and that all comes out and I think the the public pressure and the way that this is snowballed, in a sense has nonetheless put Trump under pressure and I think that that Jeremy's right that everyone is looking to find a way out and Asla is pointing to this potential attempt to effectively whitewash what happened um, and I think that's what what the drive is to to move towards now but. Whether that will be enough um, to 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 put back in the bottle what has un, been unleashed now is 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 to be questioned. I mean, I think it's very interesting that the French, the Brits, and the Germans came out with a statement together on Sunday, calling for an independent investigation. Um, demanding that, the, I don't know, demanding, but really putting the pressure on the Saudis to, to, to comply with this, to reveal what happened. That's been followed up by, by bilateral comments by, by the different member states. I mean, these, these, in a sense, are unprecedented steps by European states and others putting pressure on the Saudis, which is about more than just what happened with Jamal. Jamal is a spark, but it's to the backdrop of frustration about what the Saudis are doing elsewhere in the region, and I think an attempt to try and leverage And and, and almost to take advantage of this tragedy um, to say, what? hang on, business can't go on as normal. Um, I think it remains to be seen how far and how willing people will be prepared to push that, given the strategic relationship, given the economic relationship, and given that, as Jeremy said, Trump is trying to um, seemingly put this to bed. Um, And I guess much will depend on where Congress goes on this now.
2: Yeah, look, you know, we've been here before. I mean that's that's the thing we've had many of these types of disturbances in the in the Saudi Western relationship, not least when it turned out that 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were were Saudi Arabian, uh, and we've uh, you know it, it, it's true that at, that these moments are used for let's say readjustments. So I think that the West can gain some leverage, as Julian was saying in the Saudi relationship because of this, but I don't think we'll see a fundamental realignment because neither side wants it.
3: But Jeremy, how, how much does this differ from the post 9-11 environment? I mean, how, there does seem to be a kind of almost unprecedented uh, a move here, and, and it's very connected to MBS, and there's, you, know, you see some of the comments coming out of Congress, there's an attempt to, to, to separate MBS from US relationships with Saudi Arabia. It's very much focused on him, Look, I, I,
2: I, mean, I, I think that you're you're partially right. I mean, that, that there it is focused on
0: him, and there is a great deal
2: of upset with
0: so MBS. For people who who have uh, not been watching Saudi Arabia recently, is the the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who's the 33 year old driving force behind a, a kind of major process of domestic reform, but also behind a much more assertive Saudi foreign policy. Anyway, sorry, keep going.
2: Yeah, and. And I think that, he, that there is upset, as, you, as, as Julian was saying, with, the, with what the Saudis have been doing. But that isn't, that isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, I think that Saudi Arabia has been a problematic partner for the United States and the West generally for, for many years. And in the post-9-11 period, it was... Uh, a frustration with their spreading of uh, Islamist ideology, which was attacking the United States and attacking the West and killing many, many uh, Western citizens. And that was also a very serious thing. Uh, And I think the relationship has been dissatisfying in this way for a long time, but nobody has been willing to do anything about it. And I think this will be used for one of the periodic readjustments, but it won't fundamentally alter it.
1: But when you say readjustment, Let's not forget that, I mean, the Trump administration was on the brink of building an entire Middle East policy on MBS. Well,
0: Netanyahu was the other pillar.
1: If not, 90% of it, something, a major part of it was going to be centered around MBS. And, and together, you know, as an axis. And, and so that, that readjustment will be very important at a time like this.
2: I guess I didn't mean that, uh, that they were going to adjust that. I think you're right that they are building their, um, their Middle Eastern policy on that axis and that they still will. But what they'll try to do is, is acquire more control over MBS and Saudi Arabia through this. They'll be, they've been having a frustration, particularly when it comes to the Yemen war and a few other things. And when, every time they go to MBS and say, gee, you're making a huge mistake here. Don't do that. He says, go away. Uh, And so now they want him to be more responsive.
0: And Julian, do you think this could have any effect on the power balance within Saudi Arabia? Do you think that MBS is likely to be associated with this? Or do you think that they will claim that it's rogue elements and and get very angry and maybe other heads will roll?
3: Well, I think that's how the story is seemingly going to play out now. I mean, the the, the reports coming out and the leaks suggest that there is an attempt to to blame it on rogue elements, to uh, separate it from any connection to to the central powers that be, and in a sense, to protect um, MBS from, from any lingering blame on this. But I think it's undoubtedly true that a lot of people are going to see beyond that and see through that and say, well, hang on a second. Um, if you look at who was allegedly on the ground in, 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 in Turkey and his, their alleged links with, with MBS on a very personal basis, if you look at the way that he has centralised control in Riyadh, it's a pretty untenable story. Whether and how that will play out in terms of domestic um, Saudi politics is, is a big unknown. I mean, MBS has driven um, what has essentially been a kind of very populist domestic campaign to mobilise support Uh, by the predominantly young population, and he has done that under the umbrella of this reform program, and he's succeeded in isolating, marginalizing, imprisoning all of those sections of society, whether it be the religious establishment, whether it be the royal establishment, whether it be political dissidents, who might in any way have threatened him. Um, So he's already largely been successful at that, and it's very hard to see, even if a lot of people, and particularly perhaps within the royal circles, how his policies are impacting relations with the US and others whether there is any um capacity internally to channel that um in any meaningful way I think remains very questionable and 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 probably less likely than than likely given how much he succeeded in cementing his 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 position in power
0: so can we go to the other kind of unlikely bit of the story which is one of the things we start with Asler on which is the the Brunson element um I mean it's a completely disconnected story we discussed Andrew Brunson on this podcast before he's uh, an evangelical pastor who ended up being imprisoned in the crackdown on uh, Gulen sympathizers after the the failed coup in Turkey um and his imprisonment was the the most problematic bit in the US Turkey relationship and led to a kind of massive escalation of sanctions against Turkey which was putting enormous pressure on the Turkish financial system. Is Erdogan just using the fact that there is another story as a kind of excuse to, to quietly release him in order to save the Turkish economy? Or I mean, why, why do this now?
1: I think he had to. The pressure was way too much. And uh, as I mentioned, not just pre- pressure in terms of sanctions on Turkey's Minister of Justice and Interior under Magnitsky Act, Turkey, being a NATO country, the Minister of Interior and Justice called uh, leading organizations for, responsible for severe human rights abuses, but but also economic pressure. Turkey. Is- markets are integrated with the global economy and they understand what this means and do not like it. So, the moment you get news of a, a secret witness testifying against Bronson, you can see it in the stock market and the movement of the, you know, the, uh, the decline of the Lira at the moment, there's a good story in the case. And this is not something Turkey could afford. And secondly, I think the, the set of sanctions that uh, Trump administration was considering if uh, Bronson had not been released, we were going to be rather severe. And now that we were looking into things like uh, shutting down U.S. consulate and embassy, both of them, simultaneously withdrawing all diplomats, uh, various political and military uh, measures, uh, and uh, things possibly on the NATO front. So it reached a point that Turkey had to uh, stop bargaining and essentially send over uh, Bronson, and do so before the midterm elections in November, when it, when clearly uh, you know uh, Donald Trump was going to use this uh, for uh, in term in his campaign, and he did. He has been mentioning Bronson at every campaign on the campaign trail, and we've seen the sort of the uh, the, the event at the White House uh, with the two praying together. But I think that uh, it has left a bitter uh, taste. Uh, Turkish-U.S. relations are not only, or you know, going through the downturn because of Bronson. It's it's a down structural downward spiral. Uh, there are other issues such as Turkey's purchase of S-400s. That sort of Turkey's image is terrible on the hill. Uh, F-35 program, which Turkey is part of, there's reluctance. Uh, at this point, questions about whether or not the sales should go to US support for Syrian Kurds. And of course, what we to- have talked about before, Fethullah Gulen, uh, uh, the preacher uh, that the Turkish government holds responsible for the uh, failed coup attempt, living in uh, Pennsylvania. So I think these issues will continue to haunt.
0: Okay. So maybe um, now that we've got a very good sense of, of the different parts of the picture we can go back to this question about europe and what it means for europe and what europeans can uh, can do julian you talked about how there's been a sort of uncharacteristically united um set of voices from the um from different european players asking for an independent investigation um what what happens next what do you think europeans should do well,
3: I think the, the question is whether they will show a willingness um, and a degree of backbone to, to, to maintain that stance and, and to push for an independent, an independent investigation when it may well, there may well be attempts to engineer some kind of process which effectively absolves everyone and, and, and spares any senior Th- Saudis from, from, from bearing responsibility. Um, I do think, um, despite what Jeremy says, that this is nonetheless... Um, uh, uh, an important and necessary opportunity uh, to put some real pressure on the Saudis to to roll back some of their wider policies. I mean, I think everyone is clear uh, that Riyadh has to be a partner in the Middle East. They are too important. There's no way around them. You need them for solutions. Um, but Europeans and others have, have have grown increasingly frustrated about the degrees, the extent to which Saudi policies seem to move the region away from a stabilising track um, at the moment and and I think this has to be um, seized on I mean it's clear that the Saudis are under a degree of pressure they are on the defensive and I think the importance the importance is to translate that um, into what I mean the the kind of reset that Jeremy was talking about that, that does see Riyadh taking on Um, a greater degree of responsibility in terms of how they act in the region. Whether that involves pressing uh, full-heartedly for this investigation, whether that means communicating a broader message to Riyadh and and focusing on on their wider policies, I think it remains uncertain. But um, I think one of the issues that is going to be clear is that at one point, Riyadh is going to put the pressure back on the Europeans – Um, We've seen that that just of late with Germany and Canada that the moment you criticise Riyadh, you come under economic and political pressure. Riyadh doesn't like that at all. So I think the importance of of, of standing... um, standing on, on this position in, in a unified way will be critical to this. If not, the Saudis are very good at kind of picking Europeans off. So whether the French and the Brits and the Germans and the EAS, others can actually maintain this common position and, and not see the, the, the advantage of breaking away to get ahead in, in Riyadh's good books, um, I think will be important in terms of determining how far and how able uh, the Europeans are able to extract some good out of this situation.
0: Okay, Um and what do, what do Jeremy and... Ve- and uh, feel free to come in, <laughs> Whoever you are.
2: <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh, well, um, this is Jeremy. Uh, Mark, nice to meet you. Um, look, I mean, I, I guess I might be a little bit more cynical than Julian on this question. Um, I, I wish that Julian were, were right. Um, because I think that you know the Saudi role in the region, and uh, frankly, the Saudi, the, the the relationship between the West and Saudi is very corrupting. Frankly, for both sides, um, but um, what I see the Europeans doing is essentially being just slightly more holier than thou than the Americans, and that they're going to hold that position, which means that if the Americans move towards sweeping under the rug, they'll move right behind them because they'll be, they'll be afraid of um, endangering the, the parts of the relationship with Saudi Arabia that they have and that they feel like they're in competition with the Americans about. Um, and so uh, unless, it seems to me that unless the Americans hold the line, the Europeans won't hold the line.
3: Well, I think the, the question is whether they will show a willingness um, and a degree of backbone to to, to maintain that stance and, and to push for an in, an independent investigation when it may well, there may well be attempts to engineer some kind of process which effectively absolves everyone and and, and spares any senior th- saudis from 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 bearing responsibility um, I do think um, despite what Jeremy says that this is nonetheless um uh, an important and necessary opportunity uh, to put some real pressure on the Saudis to, to roll back some of their wider policies. I mean, I think everyone is clear uh, that Riyadh has to be a partner in the Middle East. They're too important. There's no way around them. You need them for solutions. Um, but Europeans and others have, have, have grown increasingly frustrated about the degrees, the extent to which Saudi policies seem to move the region away from a stabilizing track um, at the moment. And, and I think this has to be um, seized on. I mean, it's clear that the Saudis are under a degree of pressure. They are on the defensive, and I think the importance the importance is to translate that um, in, in, into what I mean the, the kind of reset that Jeremy was talking about that, that does see Riyadh taking on um, a greater degree of responsibility in terms of how they act in the region. Whether that involves pressing uh, full heartedly for this investigation, whether that means communicating a broader message to Riyadh and, and focusing on on their wider policies. I think it remains uncertain. But um, I think one of the issues that is going to be clear is that at one point Riyadh is going to put the pressure back on the Europeans. Um, We've seen that that just of late with Germany and Canada that the moment you criticise Riyadh, you come under economic and political pressure. Riyadh doesn't like that at all. So I think the importance of of, of standing... um, uh, standing on, on this position in, in a unified way will be critical to this. If not, the Saudis are very good at kind of picking Europeans off. So whether the French and the Brits and the Germans and the EAS, others can actually maintain this common position and, and not see the, the, the advantage of breaking away to get ahead in, in Riyadh's good books, um, I think will be important in terms of determining how far and how able uh, the Europeans are able to extract some good out of this situation.
0: It is also particularly awkward for Europeans, given that at exactly the same moment, they're making a lot of fuss about events in Salisbury and the Russian decision to to um, go after Russian citizens
2: on foreign soil. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying what I think the Europeans should do. I'm saying, I'm saying what I think they will do. Um, and uh, I, I completely agree with you. But uh, uh, at this point, we have a very long history of behavior where uh, the the fear of being excluded from Saudi contracts and the other economic incentives to um, uh, to be in the good graces of the Saudis prohibits Western unity in enforcing these types, of, uh, these types of things on, on Saudi Arabia. And I don't know, we have a very long history of that. And I'd love to think that, you know, this incident, because it is spectacularly outrageous and at least symbolically horrible, uh, that it would change that. But I don't, when I look around at, what, at the way that the dynamics are going, I see a very familiar pattern, which is a sort of expression of outrage and then a, and then a way of sort of moving past it.
1: Can I interject a dose of uh, optimism to counterbalance Jeremy's uh, cynical ideas here i mean I, I really okay. think <laughs> if you
2: if you must, if you must
1: I, I really think that there is a possibility that this will lead to a further warming of ties between Turkey and Europe in the sense that this last two weeks, it's been very interesting to talk to Turkish officials and observe the statements. I mean, Turks have the feel, they feel they have the moral high ground for the first time in a long time. Uh, and, you know, that it's somebody else doing bad and they're do, doing the right thing. And I think that's that almost has a motivating impact. And, and uh, I think that there's also the undeniable fact out there, which camp do you want to belong to? This one or that one? And I think a lot of people here in this country, particularly AKP elites, are now starting to talk about, you know, returning to European orientation. Wouldn't it be nice? Shouldn't we put our house? It's very early stages. I don't want to give anyone any false hopes here, but uh, I, it's somehow this uh, very tragic and disturbing incident is contributing to that trend
0: Okay, well I think we're going to have to um, come back in a few weeks time and see uh, whether cynicism or hope win out on this particular story it's been a really interesting discussion and uh, I think a lot of the themes we've discussed today are ones which we've tackled in in various other podcasts about Turkey, about the US and about the future of the Middle East, Um, so Uh, there'll definitely be more opportunities to to hear all three of you um on the story as it evolves but we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is the bookshelf segment um asla what's on your bookshelf at the moment
1: it's very very much related to what we're talking about the jungle grows back by robert kagan uh we most of our listeners already know who kagan is but um Basically, he's making in his new book, America in Our Imperiled World, he's making a very strong case that an in, that an internationalist and even maybe an interventionist America is a is the only hope against a return of total chaos. And uh, we all talk about the global disorder and sort of illiberal the rise of illiberalism and the breakdown of the liberal order, etc. But Kagan takes it one step further and says the only panacea is essentially America that um, starts uh, basically exporting its vision and values. And um, it's not that different from his previous books in that regard, but I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting read.
0: Okay, what about you, Jeremy? Uh,
2: I'm also reading about a jungle, but a different one. I'm, uh, I've joined, believe it or not, a Teddy Roosevelt uh, book club. Uh, And um, I'm reading a book called uh, The River of Doubt by Candace Millard, which is about uh, a little-known expedition that Teddy Roosevelt took to the Amazon jungle after, because he was depressed, because he lost the 1912 presidential election. Uh, And so he he, uh, took a trip down an unexplored river called the River of Doubt in the Amazon, uh, putting on the map... uh, heretofore unmapped thousand mile river uh, in Brazil and in the process nearly killed himself. Uh, so it's, a, it's the story of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's expedition to the Amazon.
0: What about you, Julian?
3: So I've just got my hands on um, a book called Lords of the Desert by uh, James Barr. Um, it's a story of the, the British-American rivalry across the, the Middle East after World War II. James wrote a great book about the British-French rivalry before World War II and he's just in a sense written the sequel which, which talks about how the Americans came to to push out the Brits and, and rule the roost in the Middle East Fantastic
0: I haven't read any books since uh, last week but so I'm going to just mention uh, Julian's article on the Khashoggi story uh, which is on our website Khashoggi disappeared. at the Time for an Independent Investigation where he called on European countries to come together and, and call for an investigation with one voice so uh, I don't know whether it was the result of this article, but um, it looks like it's already had some impact on what Europeans are doing, and it's a very, very thoughtful and balanced piece on uh, this bigger story. If people want to go deeper, already you're taking the side of hope.
3: Well, cynicism will triumph, so give us a minute to kind of
0: yeah. <laughs>
2: live the
3: dream, Jeremy.
2: Yeah, yeah. I always outlast you guys. If
0: you've enjoyed, <laughs> if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast. Please uh, do go to your social media page or iTunes and give us a a positive rating and review. It helps other people find out about it. Uh, If you have any comments on this podcast or suggestions for future ones, please write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Asla Aydin Tashbash, Jeremy Shapiro, Julian Barnes-Dacey and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch and our editor is Katarina Botel Atzinaro.